0: It's a real pleasure to be here, and um, before I go too far, Richard, that's a cool drum set. Yeah, I just, it was, I was kind of almost distracted because you had so many cool toys up here. Um, and I was, before, I, I just want to say one thing to let you kind of know me if you don't know me. I've been on staff here for a long time, since 97 I uh, came in as the high school one of the high school interns in around nineteen no nineteen nine two thousand two we had a, a worship service on Wednesday nights called at the time it was called Focus and I noticed that there's this cute girl sitting we used to have like pews in the middle and this about four rows back and I was preaching and as I was preaching I just looked and there's this cute girl staring right at me. And I thought, wow, she's staring right at me. I mean She's not even looking away. And I thought, like, I thought she must have, like, liked me. I forgot that I was preaching. <laughs> and, yeah, it turned out to, you know, later became my wife, Brandy. Um, I actually had to pursue her. This is funny because I was both the drummer and I preached about one-third of the time. I shared it with, with two other guys. And... And so I thought this, this girl certainly like knows who I am. I'm like a sanctified rock star, you know? I have both, she didn't even know who I was. Like, like I saw her later and she wore glasses and didn't bring him. And so she recognized my voice, but didn't, you know, she had nothing, no, no eyes for me whatsoever. I had to chase her. But uh, anyway, if I see you staring at me during this, don't, I won't misinterpret it this time. Um <laughs> Tyler, you can sigh a breath of relief. Um, so anyway, it has nothing to do with anything. I just shared that we have we have three kids: Lincoln, Charlie, and Lucy. Six, two, and one. And our house is total chaos, and it's awesome. And uh, now, a while back, Tyler asked if I could speak, and tonight was the night. I asked what what passage, and you gave me like a chapter: Luke nineteen twenty eight through. 20, verse 18 or 28, something like that. It was, and I looked, and there was like five sermons in there, and i like, what do I do? You want me to like, you know, it's like running through the Louvre, you know? Like, there's so much that you can cover, but but the thing is, is he said, you pick pick a section, preach the whole thing, however you want to do it, but... It's really merciful of Tyler and Ben to lay this out this way, because if you preached the book of Luke the way some people do, you'd start off in life stage two when you began, and you'd be in life stage four by the time you're done. And so what I'm going to do, my approach, is I'm going I'm to focus on one parable in Luke chapter 20, and uh, looking at verse, verses nine through 18, but... Context is important. So let me give you just a brief like, snapshot of the things that have happened. Uh, I believe last week Ben preached on Zacchaeus, the wee little man. I actually had my son climb a tree and I read him that passage. <laughs> thought, I thought that deserved father of the year <laughs> award. So, Jesus in chapter 19, verse 28 does the triumphal entry. And if you have been to church around Easter, you know what the triumphal entry is about, right? What comes to mind, I mean, this is, if you haven't been to church, then hey, that's, you're not, well, I'm not gonna say you're not missing much, but when it comes to this, <laughs> I, I just really don't quote me on that. This, this particular reference, the palm branches, right? You always see the little kids walking around with palm branches. And that's the triumphal entry is that we have this image of Jesus. He's riding a colt into, into Jerusalem and, and everybody lays down these palm branches. But I, when I say you're not missing much, I'm talking about the palm branches and the kids' hands. That's, that's sweet. It's like Ewoks, they're cute. But <laughs> squirrel, I, I, gotta, I gotta concentrate. Jesus does something that's crucial in the triumphal entry. It is, he is, he's going public as king in that passage, in that section, verses 28 through 40. But he goes public as king in the most risky and awkward way ever. I mean, okay, it's risky in that he chooses to ride a donkey or a colt that's never been ridden before. do we have any horse riders in the room? Yeah, okay, one or two of you. What happens if you jump on a horse that's never been ridden? Like, where to? You know, like, where? where? No, I mean, the thing needs to be tamed. It needs to be, you know, trained. And you take a young donkey that's never been ridden, and that thing not only listens to the king, but it walks Jesus through a path of screaming fans. I mean, pretty amazing, like, this, this is the king. He picked the most unlikely vehicle, <laughs> and the most risky one that breaks down all the time, that goes haywire, and, and the one who calmed the seas with his word, though, can tame this donkey. He can tame us as well, right? That was risky, but not risky for Jesus. Secondly, it's awkward. I mean, if you think about it, what, what image goes with the king entering you know, his, his city? It's like. A war horse, you know, like something tough. But this is like Jesus getting on a Segway, you know? It's just a weird image, this like little donkey, you know? And he's like, I'm the king. And so his disciples must have been saying, like, you need an image consultant. You'll, you'll never win the election this way, Jesus. But he, he's making a statement. He's making a statement that I'm a, I am king, but I'm not the type of king that you're expecting. I, I'm coming in humility, I'm coming to do something unlike, I'm not gonna go overthrow, kick butt and take names kind of thing. He's gonna do something much different. Okay, so I'm not gonna spend that much time on every little section here, but Jesus comes in and he goes public as king in a risky and awkward way. And then the first thing that happens, he's the king, he's in, tra- he's in charge, he's God, right? He goes into Jerusalem, He knows these people are gonna reject him, even though they were just cheering, and he weeps. I mean, he weeps. This is an emotional king that doesn't fit our picture of a conquering king, right? He comes in and he weeps over the rejection of these people. And then the next scene, he goes into the temple and he has a temper tantrum. Like, God's in control. Jesus is in control of this Uh, so I'm not gonna call it a tantrum anymore, but he gets angry because he sees that this is a place that's dedicated to worship, the worship of my father, and you've turned it into a place for profit, and he starts overturning tables and just like makes a cord of whips, and the thing that's amazing is nobody stops him because he's badass, you know? (laughs) I didn't say that, but he is, like he's, this weeping king riding a donkey comes in and no one will dare stop him. I mean, this, this guy's noteworthy, definitely. Now, after that, they question him. By whose authority do you do these things? And this guy's like Yoda all of a sudden and just does a total like, you know, a keto, Steven Seagal move, you know, where he takes their momentum and you guys don't know Steven Seagal he, maybe you do, I don't know, I have no idea, age difference, I'm 42, and Steven Seagal, it doesn't matter. He takes their intent of disproving who Jesus is, and he completely turns it on them. And they like, you know, whose authority do you do the, do you, uh, is, are you doing these things? And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. By whose authority did John baptize? Like, John's baptism, was it of God, or was it of man? If we say it's of man, they're, they're, they're gonna revolt. But if they say it's of God, they're gonna say, well, why are not you believe in him? We don't know. Well, I'm not gonna answer your question either. So th- th- Jesus is awesome. Now he turns and now he's gonna tell them a story. That's the story we have here in verse nine. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son, the son that I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay, so those people he's talking to, they, we know He's talking to the people but he's singling out some people. He's directing this message to a particular group and it happens to be the religious leaders. And they know it because if you look at verses eighteen and uh, 19 and 20, it says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they perceived that he had told this parable against them but they feared the people. They, they could tell that this is, this is being directed at them. Let's, I, I think you probably understand the parable. It's not terribly confusing, but he is, Jesus is, is making a point that it translates to our culture. But let's just say, let, let's make it modern and say, imagine there's a guy who wants to open a restaurant and he finds the the, the location, gets some good real estate, and, and, and he, he rents it. He has the vision for the, what kind of cuisine it's gonna, what, what the name of the place, the menu. Uh, he's got the, the business plan. He takes the, he does the investment. And he, I mean, he gets the loan and um, hires the employees, comes up with just the rules and all that other stuff. He owns the restaurant, but he hires a group of employees. Now, who gets the profit from that restaurant? The owner, right? No-brainer. Who suffers the loss if the restaurant goes south? The owner. The owner takes the risk, but the owner gets the profit. But he has to pay the employees, certainly, okay? So this guy starts a vineyard. It's the same thing. He's, he goes off to a faraway country, but he gets it all set up. It belongs to him, but he hires, hires these tenants to work the field. And, and so every once in a while, he decides, I'm gonna let some time pass so that these, the vineyard can grow, and I'm gonna send my servants to collect and instead of getting to collect, they get beaten. They get abused and sent away empty-handed. And it escalates to the point that he says, hey, maybe they're, they don't know this tenant, I'll send my son. And these guys reason and they're very rational thinking, if we kill the son, then he's not gonna come back and, and take the vineyard. If we kill the son, it'll, this thing will be ours. We've been working it, this thing belongs to us really. Jesus is looking at these religious leaders and saying, You're those wicked tenants. God, in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 5, and there's a number of places, God talks about Israel, his people, and he compares them to a vineyard. Israel, God's people, are. Are often seen as the vineyard, but the religious leaders are seen as the tenants, the people who are supposed to take care and protect and help help god 's people grow and he says instead of doing that according to my word and and for my for my glory you 've turned this and you 're doing it your way for your glory and uh, and these people say no way there 's no way that, w- that we 're this bad, and the fact is there's something called suppression or repression. I think they're practically the same thing. You know what suppression is? When you, when, you, when you know something, but you don't want to acknowledge it, so you push it down and you don't think about it. And when you suppress something, it tends to over-control you. It becomes you. Like, it becomes a theme in your life. Well, these religious leaders, they looked like they loved God, they thought they loved God, but they really suppressed a hostility against him. And Jesus calls them out on that hostility. And the funny thing is, is look at verse 20. The moment they see that this parable is about them, it says, so they watched him, they watched Jesus, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. In other words, the very thing Jesus was calling them out on, enmity against God, hostility against God, that's the very thing that, prov- that, that he provoked in them. So in other words, Jesus says, religious leaders, you love, you love God, no, you hate God. And they say, no, we don't, let's kill him, right? No, we don't hate God, let's look for an opportunity to kill him. That hatred is right there for easy to see, but they don't see it now. My question is, why, why am I going into this? H- how do you respond to this parable? Is it is it kind of safe to listen to because he's talking about the religious leaders? Is it something that's kind of like, well, I'm not, I didn't, I didn't crucify Jesus. I'm, I've actually received him. I, I believe in him. Let us put it this way: Are you like these religious leaders? or Are you unlike the religious leaders? If you ever read the Old Testament, you'll notice a pattern. As you read about Israel, they get delivered from Egypt, plagues, all these God does these miraculous things, they get go through the Red Sea, and then they just God does something amazing and then they forget about it and run away from him. And then God does something amazing to deliver them again, and then they forget about it and they run away from him. And over and over, God does shows them grace and they sin. God shows grace, they sin. And if, as, as I'm reading the Old Testament, and if you've read it, you start to go like, that looks a lot like me, doesn't it? I look a lot like Israel. Israel looks like a national picture of me, but this story looks like me all the way through, and then you get to the New Testament, and these religious leaders are Israel, and they point right at me. I think we look a lot like these tenants, and we get a lot out of this story when we ask ourselves, how am I like these wicked tenants? So I I'm wanna I'm point out three things, three ways that we are like the wicked tenants that Jesus uh, really points a finger at here. And I hope you walk away feeling really ashamed. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, we are like these wicked tenants first in that we are employees who act like owners, Like the wicked tenants, we also are employees who act like owners. Now, first of all, I recognize there's a limit to this analogy. God doesn't look at us. If you're in Christ, he doesn't look at you as an employee. He looks at you as a son or son or daughter. But this analogy, it's like we're the employees. This is, God has given you a vineyard. He's given you a life. He's given you opportunities. He's given you blessings. He's given you relationships. He's given you uh, finances. It might not be a lot. It might be a lot. He might, maybe he's given you a few good friendships. Maybe he's given you a lot of friends. Opportunities, talents, limitations even. But God's given it to you. And he says, work this life, work this vineyard by my word and for my profit. You are to live your life according to God's word and you're to live your life for God's glory. But what do we do? We wanna do it our way and we wanna do it for our glory. I'm just like these wicked tenants. God's given you tons of, you know, relationships that uh, it'd be nice if God didn't really tell me how to conduct that relationship and I know he's got some advice, but I'm gonna choose to kind of politely ignore that advice right now and do this my way. God tells me that I'm supposed to forgive, but that person's really a jerk and I'm tired of it. I'm gonna do it my way. It, or I'm gonna put some stuff on my LinkedIn profile that may really make, make me look good. I might endorse, I'm gonna endorse you know, whatever it might be. Like we, I'm gonna put out an image that makes me look great. Whatever the means. Some people are more like social media is a really overt way to do it, but we can do it real subtly too. It just make ourselves look good, and we're really doing it for us. I will confess, I do a lot of this, like preparation for preaching, so I look good, because I like to be liked and I'll think of something funny. By the way, if I ever think of something funny before, it's never funny. I'm usually accidentally funny. Um, but like if I will do this thing where it's like, I'm kind of like, am I serving you, God, or am I serving me? And I see a whole lot of me in it. That's usually when I'm anxious for these talks because I wanna do this. Maybe I'll do it by your word, but I'm really kind of doing it because I wanna share some glory. We all do this in a number of ways. We are employees who act like owners. and. Um, Here's some different ways we do this. We act like owners when we compartmentalize our faith. When you think that, you know, Wednesday night belongs to God, Sundays belong to God, maybe some of my mornings when I have a quiet time belong to God, and when I'm around Christians, that belongs to God, but, you know, the the other time, that's me time, you know? I can do what I would like to do on the Friday nights or even just like before bed, whatever, when I'm by myself, when we segment off parts of our lives and treat them as our own, that's, that's we're being employees who act like owners. That's not our time. When we, another way we do it, when we take credit for blessings. Okay, This is so obvious on one level that it's like, yeah, I'm I'm awesome, or I'm so good at this, or I I worked so hard and and made my way there. If you've been around the church long enough, you know that sounds prideful, and you don't do it. You stop. You realize that just people shake their head at that. But I think sometimes we might subtly look down our nose at people who don't do things the way we do them, people who aren't as punctual, people who aren't as organized, people who aren't as, like, maybe creative or fashionable or whatever, or we might subtly separate ourselves from people who just kind of make us feel awkward or they're not as cool or whatever it might be. Those are all ways that we're employees acting like owners because we're sort of taking credit for the lives that we've made. That's that's being a wicked tenant. There's another thing, self-sufficiency. I I don't need any help. I'm gonna do this on my own. The way I fight my sin, I first, first resort usually is self-sufficiency. And I always fall on my face when I try to do it on my own. I, you see this with kids, by the way? I don't need your help, I can do it, you know? And they're like trying to light a fire or something. <laughs> There's so many things. Okay, let me move on. We're like these wicked tenants, one, and we are employees who act like owners, two, we kick God's messengers to the curb all the time. So the, the, the vineyard owner sends servant after servant after servant, and they get abused and sent away empty-handed. I think God sends us messenger after messenger after messenger, and we are like the wicked tenants when we kick them to the curb. First of all, what's the message that God sends us? There's a few, there's a number of them. Like, for example, your life is not your own. That's, this job doesn't belong to you. That relationship doesn't belong to you. Your talents don't belong to you. I mean, we've been talking about that. Another one though, your life is not your own. You're not in control. Man, you're not in control of your life. Doesn't it feel like it sometimes? Wouldn't you like to be? Don't we try to be? But God sends messenger after messenger and says, you're not in control. Or, you can't do things any old way. And God will try to interrupt our agendas. How does he do it? By messengers. What are some of those messengers? Many of us might be parents. And, and, and we got a, a mother or a father who doesn't approve of the way we're handling something, the way we're spending our money, the way we're having, you know, doing this relationship or whatever. And you know, we would listen to them if they had a more consistent way of maybe handling their church or their finances. Like we find something wrong with them and dismiss it all because we don't wanna listen to the message. Or maybe it could be uh, God sends me- the messengers of, of the pastors. I, I know that. What I love about Life Stage 2 is that, like, Ben and Tyler and Kristen and Ryan, I mean, there's a bunch of people here who don't shy away from pointing out something if they see that you're not really, like, f- listening and pressing in with God. They're gonna, they love you enough to tell you the truth, and sometimes it's like, thank you, I'm going to be polite, or I'm just going to reject it, but do we respond? Pastors, it could be friends, roommates might be pointing out something on a regular basis. Accountability partners are messengers. Here's the you know, small groups, there's a lot of things. Um, providential messengers is a big one. I think God will speak to us sometimes by, with providence, meaning maybe you wish you were dating somebody but it's not working out, and it keeps on not working out. That's, that's providence, like you're not in control. You don't, you don't set the agenda. God is doing something, and he's trying to talk to you. Uh, it could be uh, a, a sickness, an illness, a setback. Pro- God can providentially speak to us. Here's the thing I wanna say, though, is God doesn't typically speak to us. Oh, by the way, I didn't mention the Bible, Like you're reading the Bible and it says, you know, do not be unequally yoked or whatever, you know? There's messages in the Bible. Uh, You can go home now, right? You know that. Um, What was he saying? Something. Um, Yeah. uh, Sin is bad, all right? (laughs) So how do you respond how do you respond to these messengers? Like, I think we politely ignore or sometimes we just kick them to the curb. Are you listening to the messengers that God sends? Are you, do you listen? Are you teachable? Are you humble enough to be interrupted in your agenda? If you don't know, ask the messengers. You know, that's a, that's a good way. Do I listen well? Okay, last we're like the wicked tenants in that, okay, we act like owners, we kick God's messengers to the curb, and third, we're a lot worse than we think. And you know what? That's great news. Aren't you glad you came? You are a lot worse than you think. But honestly, it's really good news. I'm a much bigger sinner than I know, and, and here's the, the proof, is I automatically sugarcoat my sin. <laughs> I like I, I wanna fluff up my, my resume before you, before my wife, before God, and before myself. I wanna think of myself as being better than I am. And, and I would like, a lot of times, I would chalk it up to being in ministry. I wish I would have graduated from this temptation by now. Oh, you know, so I still struggle, but I just struggle or I wish I would be more consistent in my prayer time. Pastors pray for long periods of time, right? What? Well, yeah, you know, and I just get really busy and, and I want to downplay and sugarcoat and if someone confronts me, I want to defend. We automatically want to think of ourselves as being better than we are when the truth is we're worse than we think and there's great freedom in that fact. And the reason there's great freedom in that fact is... Because that's what gospel growth is all about, um, is coming to see you yourself as you are. Psalm 32, verse 2, David is confessing. He's looking back on his forgiveness after his sin with Bathsheba. He, he committed adultery and murder to cover it up. And then he had confessed, received forgiveness, and he looks back and he says, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's that last phrase, verse two. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit, that you have no need to lie to yourself about who you are, about how you struggle, about where, you, where, where your heart goes, because you, you're beginning to know yourself. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceptively wicked and beyond cure. We, can, we don't even know it. We can't even understand it. So here's an image, and this is my favorite image. Um, it's on the screen, it should be. There we go. So if you, if you um, when you become a Christian, we like to believe that, okay, God's holy, I'm not, and the cross fills that gap. But as you move in time, you, you come to realize that God is more holy than you thought. And his word, I mean, he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Or don't commit adultery. Oh, I've never committed adultery. But if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. You know, same with murder. A hateful word is murder. His holiness shines this bright light on my sin. And I begin to see that not only, like I'm sinning less from when I became a Christian, but I see that my sin goes much deeper because I do the right things for the wrong reasons. I am I'm a sinner through and through. But the cross gets bigger all the time. It never got bigger. I was never on the left. I was always on the right. Like, I was always extremely sinful. God has always seen that, and he's always loved me. And when I'm discovering sin about myself, hang, this, hear this. When I'm discovering sin about myself, I'm discovering forgiven sin, when you discover sin about yourself, you're discovering sin that has been forgiven. There's no news flash in heaven when you cross a line that you thought you'd never cross. Sure, the sin is deadly and dangerous, but God doesn't say, whoa, that's the last straw. No. When Jesus died, He said, It is finished. Your sins, past, present, and future, all became past tense to Him. His love for you is fixed in what Jesus did for us. And God loves us, not because of our record, but because of Jesus' record. He punished, his, he punished my sin on Jesus, on the cross, at the cross. Now, now that I'm in Christ, I can see that sin, and I have the freedom to see it because I know it's forgiven. But when I start to take a look, what do I see in my heart? I see hostility toward God. There's a hatred, a residual hatred toward God. And look at Romans 8, 7, this next slide. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We have the flesh, the sinful mind. It's in all of us. The sinful mind, our flesh, hates God. It can't even submit to God's law. You can, you can set up your best quiet times and do you know, your best efforts, but if you're in the flesh, you're doing it just to feel good about yourself and to, keep, and, and to avoid God. Because we avoid God by running to sin and we avoid God by trying to be really good. Those are the two ways we try to avoid God, by running to the party lifestyle, whatever it is, we run to sin or we try to be really good. But either way, I don't really need God. I, I, I can manage my life without him. I could be an owner, and I can kick the messengers to the curb. We are like the wicked tenants in that we're owners, employees who act like owners. We kick God's messengers to the curb, and we're worse than we think. Do I have time to give a couple illustrations? I have no idea what time I'm supposed to stop. (laughs) Forgive me if you've already heard this story because it's old, but I just think it it works, um, and I'm not making it up. When I was the college pastor a long time ago, um, I was we we met in the thing called the the bubble, and it was like across the street, and there were a lot of students coming, and it was Sunday morning, about eleven o'clock. The place is starting to get packed out, and I'm in my office trying to print out my notes to preach. It's like ten fifty eight. Starts at eleven and my computer freezes, and I go, F. But of course, I didn't say F. I said something different. I said fudge. <laughs> and then I, I said F, and I oh, sorry, God, I didn't say that. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I, I can't believe I had the presence of mind to stop myself and say, actually, I did say that. Okay, opportunity to sugarcoat my sin, but that's what I did as a gut, as a gut reflex, or an opportunity to take a look at my sin and see what it says about my heart. Now, what does it say? Hey, I'm about to go preach and be all holy with my mouth. But what I really believe is that if things don't go my way, I have the right to use my mouth however I want. And I'm shaking my fist at God. I wasn't yelling at my computer. I was yelling at God. And I I, I can say, I know that that was my, what was going on. Here's another one. Uh, a couple years ago, I went to Greg Cook's office. I was the Life Stage 1 pastor at this time. But I, Greg Cook is, is a soul care guru. He's a, he's a counselor and, and a good friend of mine. And we share the same heart. I've always been very open with him. And so I was struggling um, with internet. Now, I wasn't diving into the deep end. I was really struggling. And that's been my medication growing up. That was in my house. And I find that when I'm tempted, that's probably like one of my main places that I get tempted. And you imagine like the, you know, I beat myself up when I'm struggling and when I'm falling. And so I went to Greg and I said, hey, I want to talk with you. And I sat across from him and I said, Greg, I just, well, how's it going? It's okay, but I've been struggling lately. You know, it's, I've been struggling looking at Images on the computer, it's not every day. It's not even every other day. It's, it's like maybe every other week. A couple of weeks will go by and then I, I'll be, and suddenly I'll notice an image on the side of the screen and, I'll, and then I'll be struggling again. And, and then I'll, you know, repent and a couple weeks go by. But it's, so it's not every, it's not, and Greg's listening patiently and he says, so what you're telling me is you're a sinner, but you're not really a sinner. It's like, oh. So you struggle with lust, but you're not a pervert. That's what I desperately want. I don't want to see myself as that guy, you know? That's, that's a weasel, right? And you're a minister? Like, oh. But here's the thing. That was the most freeing thing he could, could have said to me. Because the truth is, why was I not diving in headfirst? Fear. Fear of getting in trouble. Like, if you, if you, just to be totally honest, you remove the constraints, just, my heart is going there. And it's freeing to see that no news flash in heaven. I'm worse than I think. That's a great freedom. Last one, Tyler and I were in the same re-engage group. The pilot season, we go and we're in that group with Greg Greg Cook, and it's uh, Tyler and our, me and our wives and Greg and his wife and a couple other people. And we're going around kind of introducing ourselves and giving these kind of generalized confessions. Yeah, I struggle, we're struggling with, you know, we're, we're fighting. Every once in a while, we we'll get in getting these arguments. And yeah, our just marriage isn't quite what we want it to be right now. And, and then Greg Cook goes last, and he's the leader. And he said, well, I... Uh, I say very hurtful things to Nancy, and he's looking at her. Uh, I've, I've made the environment, with my criticism and my negative attitude, I, I've given Nancy a very unsafe environment to be at home at, uh, uh, at times, and, and he's tearing up and she's tearing up. Change the dynamic of our group. That ability to look at how he's worse than he thinks and he's learning that and he's sharing that because we are all worse than we think. But there's something so freeing about knowing that like I can uncover that and confess it for what it is, confess my tendency to sugarcoat it, but confess the hostility against God ultimately. And as that happens, we're confessing forgiven sin. The last thing I wanna point out here we learn a lot about ourselves if we look at ourselves as the wicked tenants, but we also learn a lot about Jesus. I could spend a lot of time here, but just look at this. Jesus is the stone. He is the one, the cornerstone that we are supposed to build our lives on. That's what he says. You can't, you can't build your life on anything other than Jesus. You cannot be the owner. Jesus is the owner. He's the king. Verse 17, he looked directly at them and he said, what then that is, is What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Our hostility is against Jesus. We can acknowledge that hostility and 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 begin building our lives on him, or we can suppress that hostility. And when we do that, we reject the cornerstone. And there's a saying here. It says, anyone, you know, That stone, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The image is this. This is an old uh, ancient saying. If the stone falls on the pot, too bad for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, too bad for the pot. If you don't build your life on Jesus, too bad for you. That's the only way to build a life is to Repent of the, our ways of trying to be owner and begin building it on him. And you know what Jesus is gonna say? God's gonna say to us one day, you know, in your life, my will be done. And God's gonna have his will done in our life and it will bless us. Or we can reject him and resist him without ever questioning, without ever acknowledging that. And he's gonna say one day, all right, Ryan, all right, mister, your will be done. You want life apart from me? Your will be done. It's either God's will, will be done or your will, will be done. Here's the thing, Jesus recognized that enmity. How did he destroy it? He killed that enmity between us and God by becoming the enemy. It's amazing. Jesus, the beloved son, comes, and if there's a hostility between God and man, between us and God, Jesus comes into the middle of the fight and takes blows from both sides. The the, the wrath of God that's being stored up against our sin is poured out on his son, and the best blow that man can throw at God gets landed on Jesus at the cross. He absorbed the blows, and he's the one who creates peace between us. We can acknowledge our hostility because while we were yet enemies, Jesus died for us. If he died for us while we were enemies, how can it not be safe to live for him? So that's my challenge for you. We're not the owner. He's the owner. He's the only one, only one worth living for. Let me pray, and, and the band will come back up, and let's worship Him, Father. Um, I thank You just for the fact that while I was an enemy, Jesus died for me, and 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 for the you know for us for the church here, Jesus died, paid the penalty for people who were hostile toward him. And now, Lord, we are your sons and daughters. We're your friends. You are so worth living for, but we are so slow to do it because we are busy trying to sugarcoat our sin and build up our resumes. Would you help us to get honest with ourselves, to get honest with you, to get honest with each other so that we can begin to be sincere in our love for you? rather than playing a game, a religious game. We, we need you, and we love you, and we thank you, and we pray to you in Jesus' name, amen.